Genesis 21, 1 to 21, right? Yeah. Okay, the birth of Isaac. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children yet? I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maid seven. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand. I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Haran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try something a little bit different today. I'm just going to try and share my screen, um, partly so that you can see a few bits of text on there that might be useful, but also that, so you don't have to look at me all the time. Let me just see if this is going to work. Is everyone seeing that all right? Yes, you can see it by church. Cool. Alright, so the first two slides are really dense with text, but it will get better after that, I promise. So looking at this passage here, and this is the first seven verses, if you look at this, there's a couple of phrases that are repeated here. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. And then later on, Abraham was a hundred years old. And then down the bottom there, Sarah would nurse children. 
I have borne him a son in his old age. So the emphasis there, if, if, in case you've missed it, is that they're old. You know, they're making sure that we're not missing that point, and it's it's quite an important one. You know, it's an important detail in this story. It's important enough that the writer has mentioned it four times in seven verses. They're making sure we don't miss that. So Sarah has a sense of humour. You know, Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me, she says. And the name Isaac means laughter. This child is a fulfilment of what must have sounded like a joke. You know, can you imagine 90 year old Sarah talking with her friends? You know, God said I'm going to have a, a son. You know, clock's ticking, laughing away. You know, it, it just sounds ridiculous. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. You know, not, not at her. She's laughing at it too. She knows this sounds ridiculous. She understands that this isn't normal. This is laughter at something that sounds you know, so stupidly impossible. And, and that's the key part of the story. You know, for weeks now, we've been hearing about this promise that God made to Abraham, you know, saying, I'll make you into a great nation, that your offspring will inherit the land. And you know, they waited a long time for that promise, and eventually Abraham tried to force things to happen in his own timing by having a child with his wife's handmaid. But then God reinforced that promise to Abraham, saying, no, actually, that promise is that you would have children through your wife, Sarah. And that was something that was looking more and more impossible each day. So now this has finally happened, and the emphasis here is not just that it happened, but that God has fulfilled his promise. You know, it was undeserved. Even just last week, we read about Abraham falling back into his old ways and lying about his wife to keep himself safe. That was the same, the same thing he got in trouble for a while back. But here we read that God has fulfilled the promise anyway. It was undeserved and it was impossible, but God is gracious and powerful and he chose to bless them. And now I want to just look at that same first seven verses and look at another theme that's repeated here. So this time that the phrases that are repeated, we see you know, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. It bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. So that's just within the first two verses that reinforces that idea three times that God has fulfilled his promise. So it's not just that God did this awesome thing for them and gave them a kid in, in their old age. It's that he did what he said he was going to do all along. Earlier in the week, I was listening to this to a sermon on this chapter, just in preparation, and the guy preaching said, "God will never disappoint you." And then he, he paused, and then he repeated it about ten times to let it sink in. God will never disappoint you. God will never disappoint you. And and I found myself getting quite annoyed at that phrase. You know, I was listening to this in the background while I was working, and I can usually multitask pretty well, but I had to turn it off. It kind of derailed me. You know, I started arguing with this phrase in my head and, you know, thinking this this preacher guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Anyone with half a brain gets disappointed in God. Surely I'm not the only one. And as I've been thinking over the last few days, you know, and started typing up my sermon notes, I was reminded of this sort of episode of complaining and, and you know, having a go at this guy for what he's saying. You know, I, I do struggle with feeling disappointed in God and most people I know have times when they do too. 
And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And God can handle that. Um, I got really worked up about how wrong that phrase was, that God will never disappoint you. Well, in, in, in my brain, I was saying, you know, God already has disappointed me, so this preacher doesn't know what he's talking about. Turned off the sermon, tried to move move on. And then it was a couple of days later, I was thinking about this again again as I was, I'm writing some more of my sermon notes about how God is faithful, how he loves us unconditionally, you know, all those great attributes of God. And then I, I sort of thought, but if, if I'm disappointed in God, and lots of other people are too, that must mean God is disappointing. And that doesn't seem right, does it? Um, you know, I haven't seen that listed in the attributes of God anywhere. You know, God is gracious, loving, kind, disappointing. You know, it doesn't fit the list, does it? And, and I sort of thought this is looking like a bad direction for a sermon, um, not something I've, I've heard preached on or would expect to see preached on. And of course, God is not disappointing. You know, he is faithful, he is loving, he is powerful, he keeps his promises. God is absolutely not disappointing. And I think I've come to that conclusion that maybe that preacher was technically right. You know, God will never disappoint us. But I also think that equally true is the fact that we will be disappointed in God. And I know that sounds like a contradiction, so, so let me clarify. You know, I'm, I know I'm not the only one who's been disappointed in God. You know, disappointed in unanswered prayer, in sickness gone unhealed, death of loved ones that were, weren't prevented... You know, these things are common to everyone. It's disappointing and it often comes as a shock and we feel like God has let us down. But the key thing here is that God hasn't specifically promised us that we'll always be in good health or that we'll avoid sickness and pain and death. And actually we're kind of told to expect the opposite. You know, and looking at the lives of Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself, you know, the ones closest to him all suffered pretty horribly. So we get disappointed in God when we attribute promises to him that he hasn't actually made. But when God does make a promise, he will not disappoint. And I think that's the key message here. God will always fulfill his promises. He will be faithful even when we fail and are undeserving of those promises. Here we've read about some very specific promises he made to Abraham, and he's fulfilled them. It took a long time, but... He is faithful and he made it happen. And that promise was for Abraham and his offspring. We're not all personally promised that we're going to get made into a great nation and inherit the land of Canaan. That was specific to him. It would be a very crowded land if we all tried to claim that promise for ourselves. So even though we aren't to expect that life is going to be easy and we don't have specific promises from God that, you know, He's not necessarily going to give us kids or turn our family into a great nation, save us from our enemies or famine and, or any of those things. And, and I'm not saying that God can't do any of those things. Of course he can. But unless he's told you specifically, then we might be putting words into his mouth. And when we do that, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. And that's quite a different picture than God failing to deliver on a promise. I can't remember the exact details, but years ago a friend of mine apologised to me for not being very sociable at some some gathering that we had. And she said, you know, I was just feeling really annoyed at you all day, and I, and I couldn't figure out why. 
and then she remembered it was because she had a dream that I was being mean to her or something or I didn't do something I was supposed to do in this dream and it turned out and she you know she came up to me laughing when she realized that that she had been pissed off at me all day for something that I did or didn't do in a dream and how ridiculous that situation was but that's that's a similar kind of idea right that you know we get upset at God because of something in our mind or we imagine that he would act in a certain way but that's not reality and God's ways are not our ways and although we're not specifically promised smooth sailing you know it's not all doom and gloom is it we you know we're meant to be messengers of the good news and there are many promises that God has made that do include us and we can't and we can count on him to be faithful to keep those promises so some quick examples here. You know, that God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, eternal life, that's a pretty good promise, isn't it? If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. You know, we're promised that all our sins will be forgiven if we come to him. And I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, the promise that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. You know, there, and there are so many more promises that we, we can hold on to. You know, looking forward to a new heaven and new earth. No more sin, death, pain, tears. There's lots of good promises and things to look forward to. And from our perspective, where we are today, all these things are kind of looking a bit impossible, aren't they? We are like Abraham and Sarah. We're the 90-year-olds waiting for this kid to be born. It's looking impossible. It's sounding like a joke. But we can be sure that God is faithful and he's powerful. He can do the impossible and he will keep his promises. The other thing to remember is that God is faithful to those promises because he is good, not because we deserve it. And from our series in Genesis, it seems like every second week we hear another story of the failure of Abraham. You know, he's made many bad decisions that you would think surely this would disqualify him from God's blessings. But we don't see that in the life of Abraham, and we don't see that told about how God works with us too. God's love for us is unconditional. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, that's about as no strings attached as you can get right there. You know, while we're still sinners, while we didn't even know him or care or want anything to do with him, before we were even born, God made the first move and continues to be faithful because that's who he is. Moving on to the second part of the story here, we read of the the situation with Hagar and Ishmael. So this is a little bit later on when Isaac has grown up a bit and his older brother Ishmael is mocking him and Sarah is not too happy about that. And she tells Abraham, get rid of that woman and her son for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. So there's some complicated family drama going on there. And it was never going to work out well, was it? You know, we see the the fruit of Abraham's you know, lack of trust in God's plan coming back to bite him. 
and it says that the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it had because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about your boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of a slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So God's making another promise to Abraham that he's going to look after Ishmael. The original promise was intended for Isaac, the child born of the promise. But here we see that God is also promising to bless Ishmael. Not that it was any fault of Ishmael who his parents were, but he was not promised anything special, any special blessing by God. There was no expectation that God would do this for him. It's a bit like I mentioned earlier. You know, if God didn't specifically promise anything to him, he couldn't really be disappointed in God for not delivering. After all, he was literally the result of his father not trusting God. But God not only looks past that, but also chooses to bless him anyway. And the next part of the story seems a bit strange. We read that early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent them off with her boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. She went off and sat down about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as, he sat, as she sat there, she began to sob. You know, Abraham's a wealthy guy. Years ago, we read that he had over 300 fighting men, and we can assume that that number has grown even larger now. He was operating in circles of, you know, kings and leaders, all the wealthy people. He had connections. He had donkeys, camels, goats, all that good stuff. He could have sent Ishmael and Hagar away with armed guards, you know, a convoy of animals and food. He could have given them everything they need to set them up for life. But he basically sends the two of them off into the desert with a packed lunch. And Ishmael's a teenager at this stage. So obviously this is written as a short account. You know, it's, it's a bullet point documentation of what happened. But it sounds really cold and heartless, doesn't it? Yeah. Even though it mentions previously that Abraham was distressed about this tension between his sons, you know, and he loved Ishmael. Ishmael was his only son for over 10 years. And of course, we read that God steps in and saves them, and things work out for Ishmael and Hagar. And I think that's the key point here. You know, it's glossed over that part about Abraham sending them away. It, it keeps that part of the story short. Not because Abraham didn't care, but because that's not the focus of the story. We're not meant to read this and understand it as Abraham picking a side in the conflict, you know, banishing them and giving up on them, leaving them to fend for themselves. This isn't a punishment for Ishmael. You know, Abraham loved him, and so does God. This isn't Abraham abandoning Ishmael and Hagar or withholding provisions from them. It's actually him entrusting God with his firstborn son. And in fact, Abraham sending them away is actually evidence of his faith God promised Abraham that he would look after Ishmael, that he would make him into a great nation too and Abraham's seen how God has worked in his own life he's seen what happens when he takes matters into his own hands when he tried to be practical and safe and rely on himself 
He's learnt that God can do the impossible and that God can be relied on to keep his promises. So God had been faithful to Abraham so far. He's realised he doesn't have to be a helicopter parent. He didn't need to surround his son with an army. You know, if the Pharaoh of Egypt couldn't disrupt God's plans and promises in Abraham's life, then nothing can. So he's sending his son off with nothing so that everyone, including his son, will know that all the glory belongs to God. That no one would be able to attribute the success of Ishmael to the fact that his dad set him up with riches. He sends him into the desert with a bit of food and a bit of water. He's asking for the impossible and trusting that God will show up. So yeah, on the surface, it seems like that story could be read as you know another one of Abraham's failures, but that's actually not the point. This is God. This is Abraham trusting in God. The main points that come through in this chapter is that God is faithful, that He keeps His promises, and that He can be trusted. It started with God, you know, finally fulfilling His promise in the birth of Isaac, and it emphasised that God did what He said He was going to do. It took a long time; it seemed impossible. You know, they gave up hope and tried their own ways to make it happen. But at the end of the day, God came through in his timing. Then next, God told Abraham to trust him with something else. You know, trust him to look after his firstborn son, Ishmael. Trust that God would look after him, protect him, turn him into a great nation. Abraham had witnessed God's faithfulness in his own life, and now he was entrusting God with his son. So this is Abraham putting his faith into action. And it's probably the biggest test of his faith so far. Uh, not the biggest test that he will have. We'll see next week that things get up in a new level in, in terms of needing to trust God and his promises. But this is, this is a big ask, you know, sending his firstborn son, his only son for 10 years that he loved, sending him off into the desert and trusting that God will provide and look after him. So just a couple of things to think about over the week, you know, if you resonate with any of these kind of thoughts. Um, if you're like me and you're feeling disappointed in God, you know, you feel like he's let you down, then I'd encourage you to reevaluate the promises of God. There's, there's a bit of bad teaching out there that I think can be quite dangerous to us. You know, when, we think, when we start thinking that we're promised health and wealth and that everything will always be amazing, then we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. But if we look, look at what we actually are promised, it's much bigger than those things. Those things fade away. There's a lot to look forward to that we can rely on. And although things won't, be, won't always be that great in this life, he has also promised that he will always be with us. Um, or perhaps right now you've lost some hope in, in the promises of God. Especially right now when you look around the world and it's easy to get distracted and feel like God's abandoned us, hasn't it? God hasn't promised anything specific about COVID-19 or lockdowns. He hasn't promised that people won't get sick or won't lose their jobs. He hasn't promised that we'll get to travel at Christmas or you know whatever it is that we're holding out for. But he has promised that he is in control, that he has a plan that's bigger than all of that. And although it doesn't look like it, there are good things promised in the life to come. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He 
He says that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And, and not many people would describe what he went through as light and momentary troubles. But he's reminding us that in comparison with what's to come, you know, whatever happens in this life is going to seem so insignificant. And the picture there is, you know, of a set of scales. That's what he's sort of hinting at in that verse. He's weighing up what he's going through at the moment with what's to come. Is it all really worth it? And he's saying, you know, all those horrible things in this world, sickness, persecution, death, you know, oppressive governments and COVID, you can add to that list. You can make it, you know, there's a lot of bad things to add in there, the troubles of this world. He's saying that all those things are greatly outweighed by what's to come. He's saying there's there's no comparison. So there's a bit of encouragement, you know, when you're next watching the news and you start to think about how terrible everything is, I just encourage you to intentionally remind yourself that the life to come must be pretty amazing if if it's going to greatly outweigh all these things that we're looking at and all this chaos and troubles. So I'll leave you with that um, and pass back to Sarah. Thank you so much, Michael. What a what an encouraging and brilliant word. <clears throat> I think we're going to listen to that again this week <clears throat> online. Let's just um, let's just uh, reflect on that in prayer for a few moments. Um, Father God, we thank you for the word that you have spoken to us today through your scripture and through Michael. Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We ask that you would help us to align um, the truth of what you say in our lives. Help us to hold out for the promises that you actually promise, not the ones that we make up in our minds and hold you to. Father, we thank you so much for this encouragement and we pray that you would remind us this week of your faithfulness in our lives. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and your